Good morning. We're reading from Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your only people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give, them, give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more for them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lauded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that, Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me. And every day, 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on those people. Remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people.
Good morning. Hello there and welcome to Central Vineyard this morning. My name's Tammy. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Vineyard and this morning I have the pleasure in continuing with you the teaching in our series of Nehemiah. Just to recap briefly for those that may not have been with us, the story of Nehemiah takes place in 5th century BC. It's during the end of the Jewish exile. So 140 years or so before, the Jewish people had been taken captive by the Babylonians. And subsequently, the Babylonians have been conquered by the Persian Empire. And Nehemiah, a descendant of the exiles, is now in this privileged place working as a cupbearer to the Persian king. And it's during this time that Nehemiah learns about the ruins of the city walls around his ancestral home, Jerusalem. And he begins to have this burden of his heart to go back and help rebuild that city wall. And evidently he gains favour with the Persian king. And the Persian king grants the request for Nehemiah to go back and start rebuilding the city. And Nehemiah gathers a team of people and they head off to begin the rebuild. Chapter 3 shows us this incredible tapestry of people working together to be involved in that rebuilding. And the astute of you will realise this morning our reading came from chapter 5. We've jumped to chapter (laughs) 4. If you've been following, I I just encourage you to go back and read chapter 4. It's really good. And in summary, it's about the continuing building of the wall. And during that building, they face physical opposition from their enemies. They just they have to go to war with their enemies, but despite that enemy attack, they continue to do the Lord's work faithfully and they come out triumphant. One of the big themes that we are trying to learn as we journey through the book of Nehemiah is that there's this theme of rebuilding. And we're asking ourselves the question, what does it mean to rebuild in a season where our lives have faced so much disruption? What does it mean for us to rebuild our lives on the other side of a pandemic? Something none of us have ever done before. What might it mean for us to rebuild as a church? What foundations are we rebuilding on? What will it look like for us to play our part in rebuilding the communities and the places we inhabit? What are some of the lessons we can learn from the life of this leader, Nehemiah, as we step into our season of rebuilding? Today we're picking up in chapter 5, and a new opposition has come against the building of the wall, against the mission, and probably for the first time since starting the rebuild, they've had to down tools. You'd think from the enemy attack that they received in the previous chapter, they would have downed their tools, but instead they fought with prayer, but they also fought with weapon and they joined together, united, and they were holding a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. They united and they were victorious. So it led me to question what would come against them so badly that would cause them to actually down tools? And the underlying problem we see through chapter five is there's this there's this greed and pride that has overtaken some of the Jews. 
instead of putting God's interest first and seeking first the welfare of the city for one another. Some of the Jews were putting their own interests first, their own bank balance. And Nehemiah's biggest concern was always with the mission, but it was also with the people. They had dealt with external battle, they had conquered, they had seen victory, but now came a different kind of enemy. One, the enemy of injustice, the injustice of what was happening within the walls. The problem was that the injustice was happening among the people he was called to lead. And I think we probably can all agree on that the fact injustice is frustrating, injustice is not something we agree with. But injustice doesn't just happen on a national level, injustice happens right in front of our eyes, it happens with the people that we work with, it happens with the people we live with, it happens in our neighbourhoods, our families. There's no easy way to escape when we see injustice. There's no easy way to fight the world of all the injustice it brings. But there are a few things this chapter does show us. What do we do when injustice hits closer to home? What do we do when those you are called to to love are cheating others or are being cheated on? What do you do when you see people taking advantage of a situation or being taken advantage of? What do you do when people use their positions to intimidate and coerce? Do we just live with it? Do we choose to turn a blind eye because we become part of the problem? And as a follower of Christ, as someone who is called to rebuild, we're called to be part of the solution. And that's what Nehemiah was here. We like to think the remnant under Nehemiah as having it all together. Nehemiah was a great leader. He was surrounded by great people working with him. And it's true on some level They accomplished a tremendous task, but in reality, they were probably just as dysfunctional as any group of people you were to meet today. I imagine there were lots of disagreements. There were people who thought more of themselves than they thought of others. And Nehemiah had to deal with that for the sake of the mission. But not only did he have to deal with that, and he had to get them to work together They had to fight through all the difficulties to see the mission accomplished. He couldn't allow himself to become distracted from what they were supposed to be doing. And what was going on here in chapter 5 could have been a huge distraction. It could have completely stopped things for a season because we were talking about injustice. We're talking about the lack of money. We were talking about poverty, the food that, that was in lack And people needed to survive, right? We all need to survive. So what did Nehemiah do first? How did he begin to even tackle the injustice that was set before him? Well, the first thing that we can ascertain from the first five verses is that Nehemiah listened. He listened to understand what was going on. You know, most of the people had large families and anyone who has 
a family of any description knows that pretty much everyone likes to eat. And anyone who has kids knows that kids probably like to eat a lot. And if if you've ever had to kind of do a massive family shop, something I have to do regularly, the next thing that happens is that I have to pay for that family shop and it can be quite expensive. It costs a lot of money to feed people. And what was what was adding to the problem is that whole families had been working on the wall and they'd been working on the wall for weeks. And because of the outside threat that had come upon them in chapter four, Nehemiah called all of them to live inside the wall until the project was finished. You know, and you only have to know what these people did for a living. They were farmers. What happens if you leave a farm unattended for a few weeks, particularly at the height of growing season? Well, what happens is that weeds come up, things don't get watered, or things get ripe and don't get picked. If they don't get picked, they begin to rot. If a farm doesn't get tended, it doesn't grow well. And what made it worse is that it was happening around harvest season. So the fields were ripe, but the families weren't able to harvest the grain. That meant they didn't have enough food for themselves. Plus it meant they didn't have enough money to pay off any loans they would have taken out to get them through the season. And it was crunch time. The creditor was demanding payment, but the people couldn't pay. So what did the creditors do? Well, they took payment in form of taking their children. They took their children as slaves. Now the people were crying out to Nehemiah because their children were being taken as slaves in repayment. Everything had been repossessed and they still couldn't afford to eat. But here's the kicker, the ones who were acting like the loan sharks were actually part of the remnant that had come with them. You know, verse 7 calls them nobles and rulers. And we've seen titles like that before. If you if you read through chapter 3, there was a long list of people who were listed as building the wall. And you remember how everyone had a part to play. Everybody except one group of folks. Verse 5 in that talked about the Tekoite nobles Nobles, sorry, who refused to do any work. Do you suppose this is the same group of people? We can't say for sure, but I think it might be. They were too important to do any of the work. But they had no problem extorting money from the ones who were doing the work. And as a matter of fact, the people who were giving up everything to do the work had to make up for the fact that the nobles wouldn't do any And the nobles took advantage of them. That's not fair, is it? That's injustice. That's injustice in the extreme. And actually that injustice is no different to some of the attitudes and the injustices that that creep into our world today. In fact, after reading this chapter, it feels like the world has been stuck on some loop that never ends. But Nehemiah stopped. He took time to listen to the cries of the people from the city. And I wonder if if the simple challenge to some of us as we enter into the season of rebuilding 
is to stop and listen. And if we stop and listen, what can we hear? Can we hear the voice of God for us? Can we hear the mission that God has outlined for us? Can you hear the part you are to play? Can you hear the cries of those in your streets and neighbourhoods? The injustices they face. And not just the injustices they face. Maybe I read that and maybe you felt like you were in the category where you had been on the receiving end of that injustice. What's it going to mean for you to rebuild from that? You know, maybe you're just already at that place and you're thinking, well, how? How do I move on from just hearing this voice? How do I deal with it? And as we heard last week, we all have a place to be. We all have a part to play. We are all part of some amazing jigsaw puzzle. Verse 6 to 13 shows us how Nehemiah dealt with the injustice. First in verse 6, it says that he was very angry. Nehemiah was no wimp. He didn't stand down when there was injustice. He reacted to the injustice and he reacted the same way we should. When we see people being mistreated and abused, we should be angry. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and sin not. Injustice is sin and sin should make us angry. And as a follower, when you see injustice, it's not okay to just walk on by. If it doesn't make you respond, then there, there could be something wrong with our internal clock. If you have love for your neighbour, the way Jesus calls us, and they are cheated or being taken advantage of, it should upset you. It's one of the reasons Jesus was upset when he turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple. They were extorting money from the poor. They were extorting money from the poor in the name of religion. But notice that Nehemiah took time to deal with his anger so that he would not sin in the solution. When everything was brought to Nehemiah's attention after he'd listened, it made him angry, but he didn't go guns blazing in, it, in his anger. The first part of verse 7 says, I pondered them in my mind. So he pondered his thoughts and to ponder is to think of something and to think of something really carefully and thoughtfully before making a decision. Some of us might call that taking a breath, having a moment. Either way, stopped for a while. You see, something like an act of injustice can truly make you angry and that's okay. The problem comes with what we do with that anger. If we fly off in a fit of rage, are we ever going to see a resolution? That's where the sin part comes in. Be angry and sin not. So as a follower, if something catches your eye, it's best to take a deep breath and ask, why does this make me angry or sad? Can my reaction be personal or is it because I love my neighbour the way Jesus has asked me? How can I best respond in a godly, 
manner to be part of the solution. You know, and it's always a good moment to pray. Prayers like we saw Nehemiah pray. Be angry against injustice, but don't allow your reaction to compound the problem. Notice that in this moment, Nehemiah didn't form a committee. He didn't pass the buck in any way. He consulted with himself. He took a moment with himself. Sometimes God calls us to act and God calls us to get on with the solution. And Nehemiah had to think and make a decision. And generally I'd say, as it does in Proverbs 11, 14, where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counsellors, there is safety. In planning, it's always good to include the counsel of others, but sometimes it's necessary to just consult with yourself, when you know the mission God has called you to and when you see a direct and overt threat to that mission, you have to deal with it. You can't wait for an opinion poll. You can't wait for people to choose sides. You can't allow the injustice time to grow. We need to act. So we're going to listen. We're going to listen out for the call or the problem. We're going to ponder. We're going to think about what the Lord is saying to us. And we're going to take action. And I guess the question is, how? What do we do? How do we respond? In verse 7, Nehemiah said, And then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Nehemiah didn't go easy on the solution. He went straight to the source of the problem. He confronted the problem head on. And I guess in that moment, maybe some of his his anger would have come out because he wanted the nobles to know that they just weren't allowed to carry on doing what they were doing. And I imagine he would have raised his voice or lowered it, depending on how it is you respond to anger. But he knew he had to play his part and he knew that if they couldn't rebuild, if the nobles were left to carry on in their divisive nature. And as he was confronting them, Nehemiah didn't just vent on them. He was actually really specific in his accusations. He told them what they were doing wrong. Not only did he tell them what they were doing wrong, but he told them why it was wrong in the first place. Nehemiah was a great leader. And like all great leaders, he took every opportunity he could to make it a teaching moment. He explained in his action what they were doing and why it was an offence to the fellows on the team. It was damaging the mission to see the rebuilding of the wall. You know, and it was just damaging the reputation, not among the people in the walls, but among the heathen nation outside of the walls. And as a matter of fact, he even goes on to say that wasn't the greatest damage that was done. Verse nine, Nehemiah points out the damage that injustice does to the name of God. Whether we like it or not, when we call ourselves Christians, we carry the name of Christ with us. 
So if someone who is not a Christian sees us taking part in anything that's to do with lying or cheating or stealing or taking advantage of someone, we are dragging the name of Christ with us. That's why when God opens our eyes as he did to Nehemiah to that injustice, you have to stand up. After Nehemiah had acted and confronted the nobles and rulers, he didn't just leave it there. He didn't just leave it there. He stood up and he gave them an example of a solution. You know, in basic terms, verse 10 onwards, he's saying you didn't have to do what you did. You could have followed the example my brothers and I set. We loan people money and food. We loaned it, which kind of showed they needed or expected it to be repaid, but they didn't exploit the situation for their own personal benefit. You know, Nehemiah didn't take advantage of his own people. And as a good leader and follower of God, Nehemiah set out a good example before them. He wasn't telling them to do as I do, not as I say. He wasn't perfect. No person can be. But when God calls you to his mission, he calls you to the mission to rebuild the city for the sake of the people. You need to be ready to build by example. He responded to them by giving them a command. In verse 11, he told them to immediately fix the problem. Notice there was no ambiguity in what he said. He got very detailed in what he expected from the nobles. He didn't just say, I don't want you to act like that anymore. He told them that they had to fix the problem and they had to do it in two directions. They had to fix the problem from here on out by leaving off this tax that they'd been charging. They could still loan to people, but they couldn't charge them that interest. They could not profit from their own people. But not only did they have to fix the problem from here on out, they had to make up for the damage they had already done. They had to restore all things that they had repossessed. And they had to pay back the interest. Now, I imagine that wouldn't have made the nobles and rulers very happy. They were going to lose a huge chunk of change. But in verse 12, they agreed to it. They agreed to everything Nehemiah had told them to do. Things needed to be restored in order for the mission to continue. And so there was lots of agreement and I imagine that everything went back to the way it should be. Well, not quite. Because Nehemiah was smart and he understood how people would be especially people who had had a tendency to show injustice and be unjust towards people. They never do what you expect. And so he didn't, he, he didn't leave it there. He wasn't too confident in their words. His final response was that he got it in writing. In verse 12, it says he sealed it with an oath before the priests. But also verse 13 says that he did this in front of the whole congregation. There was going to be no misunderstanding about the result. 
If the rulers and the nobles reneged on their agreement, there would be no excuses. You know, and each of us here is called to rebuild in some form or fashion. We can't do a whole lot about the injustice we see across the world. Some will be called to that, but most of us, we're called to see in the places we're called to live and with the people we're called to love. We can see the injustice for what it is. You know, and when we see injustice taking place, it's not just an act. It's always against a person, a life, a person that we see and stand in front of. And we get to decide to respond the way that Nehemiah did. We get to listen. We get to think about the part we're going to play. We get to act upon that calling And we get to set an example to the world we live in of the goodness of our God. Nehemiah's unselfish example for the welfare of the community should be a challenge to any of us as followers. You know, the story um, is told of General William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. He was invited by Queen Victoria Um, to meet um, because she had heard many favourable things about um, his work in the slums. And when she met him, she asked him the secret of his success. And he said this, Your Majesty, some men have a passion for money. Some people have a passion for things. But I have a passion for people. And God calls us as we rebuild our lives to be part of the solution for others to rebuild. God has a passion for his people. And I want to encourage us all this morning to join in with that passion, to join in with the renewal and the rebuilding that is to come for our communities. We have such an exciting opportunity to be part of that story. So I just want to pray this morning. I want to pray that God fills you. God fills you with that passion. He opens your eyes to the injustice. That he gives you the tools you need to get on with the mission. I remember last week we said, you don't don't always need permission for that. You just need to respond. You just need to respond to the call of the Lord. And I just pray that he continues to instill in you the significance of the part that you play in the places that you live. In Jesus' name, amen.